So, Andrew, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Just started talking about um, using try and the analysis of language and the analysis of transactions that has come through uh, listening to other people talk, which is where psychotherapy got started. Mm -hmm. To where really listening on the inside anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that it's interesting to talk about is that we generally speak in sentences because we were taught how to do that over time. Mm -hmm. Young kids don't speak in complete sentences like we do. It's in, in, in fragments or maybe just an important word without catching all the other words around it. Okay, so the way that we think is also in, let us say, sentence fragments. Mm -hmm. And that also the time that it takes to speak a sentence is probably about 10 times as long as it takes to actually think that. Mm -hmm. And that uh, much, much of the time then that is spent is spent in figuring out the right word uh, and uh, the, the formation of the sentence to where the idea came in a split second. Mm -hmm. concept it constructed itself immediately and then uh, we have to look at it or understand the various features of it another way about this is that a picture is worth a thousand words <laughs> so a thought is like a snap or like a picture or like a um, a feeling or um, a should or something like that and we'll describe these thought fragments in just a moment but then in order to put that in language, it takes a build out. And also that when that when that thing occurs, that's what normally impacts us into feelings. Now, these thought or thought fragments uh, can be something like. <clears throat> you have just one word come up in the mind like meditation, but the whole complete sentence of it, you ought to be meditating would be the whole sentence, but that doesn't even come up in mind. The should is almost like the impact of the word. Okay, the should that we would say in language to give the impact rather than just uh, uh, meditate, you should meditate then that should has that punch that's also in that, that thing. And this, this punch that we're talking about then the Buddha knew quite a lot about, and the Pali word for this is pasa, and it's right there in the middle of the teaching of Paticca Samuppada. Now, today I'm just going to kind of give you a basic introduction to Paticca Samuppada, and then later we'll go into the basic deep parts of it. But the first thing to understand is, is that the Paticca Samuppada is Buddha's understanding of the nature of the second noble truth of where does all this suffering come from, mm. which is exactly what Freud was doing. So you could say that Buddha's Paticca Samuppada is the entire teaching of Freud if you throw a couple of things out that are irrelevant, like dream therapy and, you know, in, on the interpretation of dreams and um, stuff like that. And even Freud said, in fact, one of the biggest jokes that I love so much is he had one of Freud's jokes was sometimes a cigar 
It's just that. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily have to be phallic. Mm-hmm. And so um, the the teachings then of, of the uh, the Freudian with the id, superego, and ego, we can see remnants of that hanging inside of the teaching of the Buddha with the Paticca Samipada. In the sense that, uh, and um, Eric Byrne, as I've mentioned before, uh, was the one who took the Freudian uh, language that's so confusing. In fact, it's really confusing uh, into a language that we can better understand by by calling it parent, adult, and child. Mm. And that the basic dialogue is between the parent and the child. Okay, and that parent, uh, the the that relationship between the parent and the child is, is that the first thought is that thought like you should meditate, but it's not a formed thought. It's just a heavy meditate. Okay, you should meditate, all right? That's followed then by the child's reaction, which may not be a thought at all, but rather a feeling. Mm -hmm. And that feeling can either be, oh, no, I don't want to meditate, or, yeah, that's a good idea, would be normally the reaction, okay? So I either like that thought that I had of meditation, or I don't like it. That's uh, Vedana. So we've talked about then that formation of the thought is um, what is called Thalayatana. That's that word meditation with the heavy emphasis that would be in sentence one would be you should meditate. Mm -hmm. That's uh, uh, this is Thalayatana. That's followed by the impact of that you should meditate. And this is a very powerful one. In fact, uh, K.B. Taylor, one of the stars of transaction analysis, uh, came up with the concept of drivers. And he he um, understood that stuff coming from Eric Byrne's study of life scripts. This is what Eric Byrne called it, life script. Now, what that really, that's much more accurate than what is the old way of talking about it is destiny. Mm-hmm. Three destiny or providence or whatever, that basically what it is is that we've got a script and that we follow that script our whole life. And that script was written uh, when we were children. We wrote upon the empty blackboard, not everything, but everything that impacted us mm-hmm. from our parents and our teachers and all uh, older siblings, other kids, all that kind of stuff. And we built up a, um, let us say, a map of the world, or a way that it should work, or a um, a set of rules, a set of laws, rules, rites, rituals, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha had two different words for it, depending upon the connotation. One was the word Siva Bhatta Paramasa, which actually means attachments to rites, rules, and rituals. There's that word Siva. You hear so much about Siva in Buddhism only to find out that the deeper teaching is, is that Sila is an attachment that needs to be freed. 
That's one of the, the ten fetters, right? Yes, in fact, it really is. It's the second one of the ten. Silabata Paramasa. The other word for it is uh, Sankara. And that one is the way that it talks about it being built up over time. That mm. it's all been collected together. That this wasn't one big worldview that was delivered to you. That you built this thing up piece by piece in a way of looking at the world. Okay, this is the Sankara. And that Sankara, or our rule-based system, influences uh, our perception system so that these thoughts that come up are ha have influence about them. So you could say that you got meditation just recently, but the should came when you were in uh, just coming out of diapers. Mm -hmm. And so that should that's in there uh, is, is basically the uh, the Sila Bhatta Paramasa, or the um, the thing then that affects the child. So the the way that we were affected by things when we were kids also becomes part of that habit system, so that we wind up feeling about the thoughts that we have the same way that those thoughts were put in. We also follow that along with our feeling too, and so the way the children are raised in uh, the societies that we that we have now on planet Earth, for the most part, and there's a whole lot of variation in it. But basically, the whole concept of public education means that you take the child away from his toy, sit him down in front of a book he does not want to learn, mm -hmm. and make him learn the alphabet. Very few people learn to read because they want to learn to read. Most people learn to read because they're told to learn to read. Mm -hmm. Got to do it. <clears throat> and so we um, take on the attitude that I would rather play with my toys, thank you very much. But then we put an exclamation point on that. <laughs> and we don't like it, and so we resent it. So this is what happens then, is whenever we are told to do something, we have a natural rebellion against it. Mm-hmm. But then we will, uh, the instinct will kick in and we will go along to get along. So we'll do what we're told to do, but we don't like it so much. And so in this going along to get along is um, what the Buddha refers to as an animal state. Not mm -hmm. in the sense of a worm or an insect, but in the sense of a draft animal. Mm -hmm. But this is what he meant by it, that the, uh, the donkey has no um, <clears throat> choice as to whether that uh, long pole is going to be strapped to his back and, and he has to walk only in a circle, pulling that pole around in a grindstone so that the, um, uh, the, the grindstone man can take uh, sugarcane and put it into this mill, and out comes sugarcane juice. Donkey don't get no sugarcane juice. Donkey makes sugarcane juice. Donkey don't get sugarcane juice, okay? This is exactly what's going on for our whole lives, and so whenever we tell ourselves something with that split-second thought, the first reaction is, no, I don't want to do it. It's hard. This is where all this hard and trying and stuff came from, 
was this is the attitude of a victim or more specifically the attitude of a child. Oh, it's so hard. I yeah. don't want to. Okay. And so we have built up that habit then of this sequence of events that wind us into liking and not liking and being disappointed, et cetera, like that. This, this is the feelings. Now, these feelings, if the ignorance continues, and when I'm saying ignorant in the sense that most people do not know how their mind functions. They don't know how it operates. They haven't even paid any attention to it. They wouldn't even think that they could figure it out. It's almost like many people would buy a, um, a cell phone without having an engineering background, and it's just a cell phone to them. But to an engineer, we want to know where is the Wi-Fi chip, where is the Bluetooth, where mm -hmm. is the processor, where is the power leads, how does the power supply operate? You know, I want to know all the hardware and how it puts together so that now we can build an operating system. But that's a different way. So this, this is actually what we're looking at is becoming an engineer for your own mind. Mm -hmm. Okay, to begin to really look at what's going on there. So. This is what both psychology was doing and what the Buddha was doing, but the Buddha was looking at it in a, a kind of a deeper level and could see this, but we can use the, um, uh, the psychology that we've come to as an, as an assistant to help us delve into this uh, strange, smoky area of Paticca Samapada that actually describes how the mind works. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so when we do understand how the mind works, that means that when we do have feelings, there'll be wise feelings. In other words, we'll know how we feel. Right. Most people don't know how they feel because they're kind of not paying attention to it. And so we'll have a kind of a smoky thought that's very, very quick. One word that has a punch to it that impacts us and we begin to feel. Yeah. Now, feeling is a feeling of liking then we will ignorantly want it. In other words, we see a pretty thing and we want to own it. Oh, I like it now. I'll like it the next time I see it. If I have it close to me, I'll like it and I'll like it and I'll like it. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of issues about the liking it has to do with that it makes me feel good because it makes me secure. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel safe. An example of that is how do people feel just as they're leaving home and they have a thought of a cell phone? If they don't take it with them, it may be dangerous. The cell phone will be safer if I take it with me. Mm -hmm. But it'll be dangerous. I'll get really, really bored waiting at the doctor's office or whatever for a long time, but I can take my cell phone. Or it may be dangerous out there walking, but if I uh, have danger, I can call 911 really quick. And then, you know, so this is the point then is that we do things without even noticing that there was a, a thought that may be nothing but the image of a cell phone. But there was a dialogue about you should have that cell phone followed by a particular feeling, followed by. And now we go into the house to get the cell phone. We want the cell phone. We can't find it. Now, how do we feel? How do we feel when we want something that we don't have? All right. That's the feeling now that the Buddha is talking about. This is Tanha. It's thirst. Wanting something that we don't have. 
And that then leads to a mad scramble, like looking all over the house. And then now the most important thing in my life is to go replace my cell phone. I've got to go get a new one. Yeah. Right? So that's real clinging and all of that. And that whole state of I need that cell phone, I need that cell phone, means now we have become a being that has a great big hole that only a cell phone will fit into. Yeah. And then I would be complete with my cell phone. Without the cell phone, I will be completely incomplete, unuseful, unwholesome, unhappy to myself. Uh, so this is how we wind up in one of these woeful states. Mm-hmm. And in this kind of woeful state, that's almost like a panic. People will go in panics over a cell phone. Uh, I... A cell phone worth a panic. <laughs> I recognize uh, so much of what you're describing just from from my own sort of behavior, like e- even from today. I remember I was like, I was, it was getting close to lunch and I was thinking about what I wanted to, where I was going to eat and what I was going to eat. And I decided on it. And then I was like doing a, a little bit of uh, sitting um, before that. And I, I could see like some of the craving for this food like going away but the like really unwise activity that I observed is like, there was like resistance. It was like, even though it was like, you know, it would be just like fine to not want that specific thing. I was like, I was like attached to the wanting and to the idea of like fulfilling that desire. So even though there was like, it could have been comfortable to just let that go away and be fine in this moment, there was like a part of the mind that was trying to hold on to that, that idea of this thing that was going to make me happy. <laughs> right, exactly so. Well, there's several ways that we can take this. And um, one of them is to begin to look at the sensations or the feeling of hunger itself. Mm -hmm. And why is it that we automatically don't like it? Where in fact, hunger can be a very, very useful thing for many people. Mm -hmm. Okay. An example of that is, is that generally when you're hungry, that means that the body is removing storage food and you're probably losing weight. You're actually now burning off and breathing out carbon dioxide that's coming out of the oils that are stored in the body. And so that's the part of the mechanism of the hunger. All we're going into deficit now. Well, if you're on a diet, that's wonderful. You really want to put your body into ketosis. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but that's a different mentality that's based upon wisdom and knowledge rather than mere instinct the mere instinct is is that oh no it's dangerous for me to be hungry i could die of starvation if i don't eat mm-hmm. but that's very childlike um let us say instinctual kind of thinking so we can do that with all kinds of things rather than just hunger that we have automatically decided that a whole bunch of stuff is bad because of all of these rules that we're carrying around that we made up when we were children. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably true that no one, when we were a little kid, sat down and explained to us that you can use hunger as a tool for examination. Almost always, mommy is, are you hungry? Are you hungry? Are you hungry? Or it's also the whole point is, is that never mind whether you're hungry or not, you eat when it's time to eat. Yeah. And you finish uh, food too. <laughs> pardon? And you finish what's on your plate too. Right. Mm-hmm. 
that in fact, I remember when I was a really little kid, I don't know how this happened, but mom, you know, back in the 1950s, was, you know, eat what's on your plate. You know, there's kids starving in India. And I handed my my plate and said, please mail this to India. <laughs> <laughs> yes, eat what's on your plate, but I but I lost that battle. And I recognize that I lose that battle every time food is served. What am I going to do with it? Generally, the solution to that is to say, feed the dogs about half of what's on my plate. <laughs> that makes it fun. One bite at a time. I just throw it in the air. They've gotten very good at catching. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we're supposed to eat all of our uh, the food on the plate. But when you've got friends to help you, that's not a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. Do you know that in other cultures it's completely different? That you're supposed to leave food on your plate as an indication that you've gotten enough. Mm. Because in that culture, if you haven't, if you get your plate down to being empty, it will be immediately grabbed from you, filled up again, and placed in front of you. Now mm. you've got to eat this too. <laughs> <laughs> But that's just a cultural thing, but it all has to do with this feeling is thou shalt not be hungry. So in, in terms of like uh, what I was describing earlier, where it's like, well, I don't even necessarily notice the thought that brought it about, but I just notice like the the sort of like falling into the posture of, of dissatisfaction. Is it is it because it's not, you know, it's not I don't want to get caught up in the content. Right. So it's it's not about figuring out what the cause is it's just about cutting cutting off the the feelings that have started to proliferate actually um let us say that there are several stages involved with this Mm -hmm. and you could also go so far as to say that the jhanas are these stages you've heard about jhanas i'm sure before okay (laughs) So the jhanas then, the jhana state that you're in, basically says how sharp, how fast, and how stable is your mind. Mm. Okay, when our mind is all over the place, it's like a camera all over the place. And when a camera is all over the place, it doesn't take good shots. Mm -hmm. That if you get a really stable camera, an example of that is having a conversation um, on Skype while somebody's holding their cell phone. doing this you know kind of with a selfie and um that's not the right way to start it but eventually the arm gets tired that we need to have the camera stable this whole concept is very uh, much associated with that's what we're doing is we're gaining stability Mm -hmm. okay another way of talking about it would be sea legs in the Pali, we're talking about it in the sense of equanimity, or upeka is the Pali word for it, and we can think of this as, as stable. Um, let us put it this way. You've got a giant mountain, and somebody wants the coal or the diamonds or whatever is under that mountain, and so they will take a huge amount of dynamite or other explosives and, and blow and a big hole in that mountain. But guess what? The mountain is still stable. Even though it's gotten a hole blown out of it, it's still there. It's still stable. Okay. 
this is the kind of stability that we're talking about so that you can get very, very stable and then you can watch things flitter by. So long as we're here, what's flittering by and we're together, we miss a lot of stuff. Okay. And so with stability, so a lot of them, the jhanas have to do with how stable and how close we're inspecting, we can see things happen faster and faster in the mind. So the first place that we want to find a resting point is at the point of contact, when this stuff contacts us, that we can see how we feel. The Kabutadasa calls this wisdom at the point of contact or knowledge of how we feel. So that you know how you feel before you act on that feeling, you can decide whether you want to have that feeling or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, it, and possibly a good example of that is, and is something that is strange within Western culture. But let's look at it this way. I can want something, excuse me, I can like something without wanting it. I can go window shopping. I can go into a store and like things, pick it up, put it in my basket, and then decide even though I like it, I'm not going to buy it. I don't want it. Mm -hmm. Right? We need to develop that as a skill to be able to like stuff without wanting it. Because if we want it and we don't have it, now we're in dukkha. Because mm -hmm. we're now we got to go get it. Now we got to pay for it. Okay? But if we don't want it, then it's okay to like it. It's okay to like that beautiful girl. I mean, she's beautiful because we think we're be she's beautiful, but she worked really hard doing all of that. Mm -hmm. We can appreciate that she's worked really hard, but I don't want her. Right. This, I mean, this sounds like what I was describing with uh, my experience with, with lunch earlier, where it was like, I was, I noticed that I was attached to the wanting and like, as the wanting was going away, I was like, no, come back so I can satisfy that one. <laughs> Okay, so that were, that wanting is tanha leading to upadana, which is the actual clinging. I got to go do it. I got to go get her or I've got to go get something to eat because I so dislike this feeling of hunger that I am desperate to get something to eat. All right, so these are, but this is all done in ignorance. Because we really don't know that we're making ourselves miserable. We don't recognize that. If we uh, are, have wisdom at that point of contact, that means that if I don't like it, that doesn't mean that I have to do anything about it. I can, in fact, go back and give myself something better about that. Uh, turn my, okay, so if I don't like something, instead of yelling, I can appreciate the fact that, hey, I don't have to yell about that. I can let that go and I feel pleased with myself for not having to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to grasp and cling after it just because I don't like it. Okay. And so all of those things work together, but there's actually a third kind of feeling that is referred to here. Uh, and in in the Pali, it's referred to is uh, uh, either a dukkha a a sukha vedana or dukkha sukha vedana. Now, what this means is that it's a, either a combination of uh, liking and not liking, a push pull, 
or it's kind of uh, in between in the sense that it's not just in between and satisfyingly in between, but it wants to lean towards one or the other. Yeah. Okay. okay. Or it's a mixture of both, but which one of them is more greater than the other? Mm -hmm. All right. And so that decision process then generally can be resolved correctly with more information. But what we normally do instead is worry. We try to uh, get solutions to problems that we don't have enough information on. And so we'll, we'll worry it to death or we'll uh, become confused, full of doubt. This happens often in a meditation practice when the students um, are, con they get themselves confused. They don't know what to do because they haven't been, um, they, let us say they didn't get sati in that moment to wake up and recognize the choice is yours. Make the choice, but make the choice correctly. In other words, you can just throw all of that confusion out and make the choice of, I'm not going to be confused now. I'm going to sit here and be happy. I don't have to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. That's not my problem, not my issue. If I don't have enough information to solve the problem, then it's okay that I don't solve it. And so um, these three kind of feelings wind up in the four modes of clinging. Now, how can three go to four is one of the questions that engineers will always ask. But we can see that in fact, any of the three can lead to any of the four. And that's the way of looking at it. And that not only that, but the four can be in combination. And there are in, in the teachings of the Buddha, four meth modes of clinging. These four modes of clinging, surprising, surprising, surprisingly enough, are the four main instincts that scientists came up with less than a hundred years ago. There is a one-to-one -one correspondence and I found that so brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I was dancing all over the watt when I felt <laughs> <laughs> So, um, basically, the four modes of clinging have to do with one would be materialism. Number two would uh, be this clinging to rites, rules, and rituals or the silabata paramasa. So not only is it a better, but it's one of the modes of clinging. And also there is uh, clinging to views or clinging to the way of how I fit in to my territory. In the sense of patriotism and borders and of, of I am a Christian, or I am a Republican, or I am an American, or I am a Jew, or I am an Indian, you know, whatever like that. Mm -hmm. So these, uh, these three instincts are in, uh, are these three, fetters or uh, modes of clinging fit deeply into uh, the number one of it is is personality view. We cling to who we think we are or who we should be. Okay, so these four modes of clinging that the Buddha came up with 
surprisingly enough, then the self-preservation instinct is giving rise to clinging to personality. In other words, sustaining of the uh, organism becomes clouded with that I am that organism. Okay. Now, the next one is in order to protect that organism, we need a weapon or two. We need a tool or two. And so we get houses, we get clothing, we get uh, uh, buses, we get cars, we get cell phones, we get axes and swords and originally sticks and rocks. But we gather these things and we also gather together other people, maybe a mate or two. And so this gathering around of things in order to protect the self mm -hmm. is materialism. And that materialism is one of the major problems of the world today. Too much materialism, digging up too much of the ground and putting it into the air. And <laughs> now, at one time, poverty meant poverty in a certain kind of way. Now, poverty in the United States means a certain uh, amount of income, normally done per capita. And I'll tell you, if you gave me the the amount of money at a poverty line level that they expect to be called poverty in the United States, that money, I can find a place where I can spend that money and feed 20 people on a regular basis. Because they know what poverty really is. Okay, so all of this stuff is kind of relative, but in Western civilization is, is even the poor people are rich and they still don't have enough. And then the wealthy are rich and they still don't have enough. And then the super wealthy are rich and they don't have enough. And then there's Jeff Bezos and uh, Elon Musk and they're fighting with each other over who gets into the air and who gets <laughs> the most money. I find it really, really humorous that humanity like that just never gets over the fact that when is it that we're going to learn to be satisfied? I've got enough. When we start five computers is enough. <laughs> I don't need ten. Don't need any more. Mm -hmm. So I know that's a joke, five computers. Some of them have been broken for years. <laughs> so, um, the idea then is that um, this is what the scientists call the procreation instinct, but in the procreation instinct, immediately the Western mind goes to sex because that's the underlying position of the procreation, but it has to do more with gathering. There was a far side cartoon once that showed uh, a Neanderthal dressed in a bearskin carrying a huge club in one hand, and in his left hand was a hank of hair that still was attached to a woman <laughs> as he was dragging her into the cave. He had knocked her out with a club, and now he owns her. Okay, this is basically we we get confused between sexuality and ownership. That I want her to be mine. Okay, there's this grasping and clinging to a physical object. She will give me so much pleasure. I want her. And so marriage is really about a um, uh, a contract of ownership and control. 
not fidelity or love so much. Fidelity comes second because fidelity is an issue of ownership. So uh, the next instinct is the um, herding instinct or the nesting instinct, which basically means that if you're going to stay in this herd, you have to abide by the herd's rules. Also, you want to stay in the herd because the herd is safe. It's going to protect the self-preservation instinct is going to be in there. And so we want to get into the herd because the herd is going to help protect us. And then the, the mentality of the human is the middle of the herd is the safest. Where the middle of the herd may not be really the safest place. But being a straggler or an outsider is downright dangerous. And we kind of pick that up as kids, especially if they put us into timeout or uh, in the corner or whatever like that. That's the whole idea is to isolate the child, to make him feel bad because of that self-preservation, not to self-preservation instinct, that's the spanking. But the, uh, um, the isolation is to bring up that uh, instinct to make the child want to get, go along to get along, which is back to all of the stuff that we have. And so uh, we, by putting our children in isolation, we actually are teaching them how to feel bad. Right. So uh, the, the next instinct is the territorial instinct and animals, especially dogs. Dogs are really brilliant about territorial instincts. They know exactly where their territories are, and they know exactly what the rules are about when it's okay to cross your boundary and when time it's not. An example is, is when you're chasing a motorcycle off of the property, you have to stop at the property boundaries. But if you're chasing a dog off the property, it's okay to leave the property and continue to chase the dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> so anyway, humans have changed all of that, though, because our territory now has become intellectual. Hmm. And so we gather up a territory or a map. And that we are in our territory and everybody who is not in our territory is outside our territory or other or dangerous. OK that uh, the nest is safe, but I've got to get along in the nest. But if I'm outside the nest, then that territory is dangerous. Those are other people. This is what gives rise to racism, tribalism, and all of that kind of behavior at a gross level. But we do that on a personal level on a regular basis also, mm -hmm. that we will judge people without getting any information about them, yeah. simply because we don't know them. And because we don't know them, that goes into that confusion area that we're talking about, that third kind of feeling. You see a stranger, you don't know them, we immediately suspect that they're dangerous. So that feeling falls then in from the confusion, it falls into not liking. I don't like him. Why do I not like him? Because I don't know him. Isn't that interesting how this whole stuff just fits all together that to, we can begin to recognize how we operate? And these are the four modes of clinging, but if we have wisdom at the point of contact, then our feelings will be wise and we can choose how we're going to feel about something. 
and that one of the ways that we want to deal with confusion is you just hang out. Let's get some more information. Let's not make a choice or decision. Now, we don't have to automatically assume that he's an other or that he's because he's strangely dressed, that he's a strange person. That strangeness is in the eye like beauty. Strangeness is in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. But we don't like strangeness when something, in fact, that there, you can hear that word strange. And it has automatically got a negative connotation to it. Right. But if it's got, if it's investigated, then it's no longer strange. Mm-hmm. But if it stays strange, it stays dangerous. Where in fact the reality is, is that it's not dangerous at all. We perceive it to be dangerous simply because we don't know it. The reality is, is that there's nothing really much danger. This is one of the major teachings now of the Buddha that's kind of hidden in there. And that is, um, it's it's actually partly due to the bad uh, translation. You've heard of the word fearless within Mm -hmm. context of Buddha, that the Buddha was fearless. Mm -hmm. We even have a Bayagiri, which means fearless mountain. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this, we use the word um, fearless because that's the easiest, most direct translation from abaya. But baya is fear, okay? But a much better language for us to use in order to understand the Buddha would be talking about it in the sense of safe, to feel safe, to feel secure. Fearless has the connotation of a warrior. Yeah. Okay. Safety has um, uh, the connotation of, um, let us say, uh, a remote observer. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what we're really talking about is the the feeling of safety, to promote the feeling of safety. Mm Mm-hmm by not allowing strangeness and other things or indecisions or jobs that we've got to do and things like that to allow us to feel afraid. That a great bit of our practice is is that as soon as that thought comes up, instead of going into, oh no, I've got to go write that email kind of, because we had just a flash of a thought of an email Mm -hmm. and now we have the feeling of, oh no, Right. <laughs> we need to catch that in the process, okay, so that we can have wisdom when we see that email come up. We can be wise to that and and reassure ourselves we don't have to feel bad. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do that email right now. I can literally talk myself into feeling good to where the natural indication was to feel bad, mm-hmm. which would be see, feel, or uh, have a, a very quick thought followed by a feeling or a reaction, which can sometimes be both intense and sudden. Right. So, okay. so anyway, it's, it's not about like the, the action. It's not about like writing or not writing the email, but it's about like not acting from a place of confusion or a place of worry, not acting while a defilement is present. 
actually the issue is almost always the case that it never was an issue of writing or not writing the email. Of course, you're not going to write the email. You don't like writing that email. You don't want to write that email, but you're going to think about writing that email a thousand times and feel bad a thousand times before you do write it. And when you are writing it, you still feel bad. Right. The only payoff that you get is when it's finished. And That's then good. after it's finished, then you say, wait a minute, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and then we're left with bad feelings the whole show. Mm -hmm. All right. With very, very little satisfaction. So the way to, that we're actually talking about practicing is when the thought of the email comes up, it's normally followed by the feeling of I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. We can uh, because that's critical thinking. The critical thinking is uh, I like it or I don't like it or I uh, it's good or bad, that kind of thing. So another way of talking about it is instead of having critical thinking or unwholesome thoughts about it and unwholesome feelings. We also uh, change that into wholesome, which we call gladdening the mind. Mm -hmm which in this case would be, oh, no, I don't have to do that email right now. I can sit here happily. I can come to a state of satisfaction, which is based upon security and safe right now. Even if I don't write that email, it's OK. I don't write that email. It's all right. You mm -hmm. don't have to do it right now. Right. And so we start to nurture ourselves and take care of ourselves and everything is okay and everything is fine. And when we start putting those kind of thoughts in, that's what's going to impact us. Mm -hmm. So that we begin to start giving ourselves the feelings of pleasure, the feelings of joy. And when we talk to ourselves about feelings of uh, safety and security and satisfaction, well, actually just safety and security, we begin to feel safe and secure. But if we're talking about work to do, if we're talking about things that we don't like, if we're talking about things that we don't know, and when I say when we're talking about it, I mean when we have that flash of a thought, mm -hmm. that very flash of a thought, then that we automatically, because we're in the process, or let us say in the habit of operating instinctually, and so we wind up back in bad feelings mm -hmm. just because we thought of an email. Mm -hmm. Why? Why should we have all of these bad feelings just because we have an instantaneous thought about something? Yeah. You have a choice there. And this is what the real issue about. This is the Eightfold Noble Path in the practice of Anapanasati because of this deep understanding of Paticca Samapada and how the mind works. We're going to develop a meditation practice that deals with that specifically and directly. And that's where the Four Noble Truths uh, and the specifically the Eight Four Noble Path comes into play. And that is to take that right effort to change what's in the mind from unwholesome to wholesome thought. And the wholesome thought then is going to be a thought of safety, security, comfort, satisfaction. And we have those kind of thoughts over and over and over again. No place to go, nothing to do. And the grass, uh, the spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Everything is okay. Easy peasy, not a problem in the world. And we continue to talk to ourselves like that. This is the gladdening of the mind. 
And then we take a few deep breaths and just allow ourselves to relax. Just relax and be comfortable and secure and everything is okay. And this is what leads into the feeling that I can do this. I can get myself into this state. A feeling of actual, not just satisfaction, but also success. Just to be in a state of success. Oh, this feels so good. I can do this. A little smile comes on the face and a deep sigh of relief. Just everything is so easy peasy. And this is what we do to get into the first jhana. Is this satisfaction, this success, the feeling of joy, the feeling of I can do this. And we keep doing it. And we keep going. We apply this kind of language and then keep repeating it over and over and over again until we have one wholesome thought after another. Everything's okay. Everything's fine. Not a problem in the world. Oh, what a joy it is when you got nothing to do. Everything is easy. Everything is fine. And so this is the language that we practice over and over again because that allows us to feel good without wanting anything. Right. We've already got it. We can feel good. We can practice feeling the way that we want to feel, satisfied, content, and successful. And so this is the beginning of the mind state of getting ourselves into that state because now the mind is really fit for work. And in this kind of state, you could probably make a a real um, whiz-bang email mm-hmm. oh it's funny I, I i have to laugh because i'm thinking like when i tried to like do concentration practice in the past with like the intention of cultivating jhana states i was basically doing the exact opposite of what you were describing it's just like sitting in a version and should and it's like he- hearing you explain it like that now it like it's just like oh of course <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's the way that people get it. Of course, that's the way to practice. That's the teaching of the Buddha. And it is also, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa once said, and when he said this, it stirred up some controversy, but the controversy died away very, very quickly because Mm -hmm. nobody could prove him wrong. When the Buddha said that the Buddha, or excuse me, when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa said that the Buddha only taught one kind of meditation, which is Anapanasati, based upon the Four Noble Truths and the, and the Eightfold Noble Path. And we practice Anapanasati for a deep understanding of how the mind works. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. And yet, look how many different kinds of meditation have sprung up out of, out of Buddhism. Yeah. And it is true, like so much of what's what's taught here is like, yeah, just staring, staring into dukkha and not this like simple thing of just like cultivating actual pleasant states. Right, cultivating pleasant states, cultivating kindness. Everything's all right. Everybody's okay. Not a problem in the world. Got no hassle with anybody. What, what is this habit then of like, even as I was like exploring that, as you were talking of just like bringing that about, it's like, I can see like, there is like this sort of like, like this drawing into the pleasantness, but then there's also this habit where it seems like Dukkha like wants to keep, keep knocking, you know? 
Well, that's the habit pattern of the mind. You've been doing that for a long, long time. Now it's time to develop a new habit. Yeah. People kind of expect that once they turn the motor on, it's going to stay running. No, you've got to keep putting fuel in it. And occasionally you've got to go back and start it up again. Yeah. All right. Well, with the mind, it's already in the sense of um, it's very much like Sisyphus. Mm. It's very much like that. And it is it seems to be a burden for everyone. That we have to get the the boulder to the top of the hill and we feel like failure to where the real point is, is that once we um, push the ball up a while, if we lose contact with it, then it's going to roll back down. And so now we have to roll it back up again. The trick is, is can we sustain it where it is when we get it up to a place? Maybe what we need to do is we need to put a little hole in the in the the hill so that when we get it up to that place, now the, the stone can rest there. And then we dig another little hole up the hill and then we can push it up to that place and get it to rest. But it naturally rolls back downhill. So. This is how the mind is working, but that analogy doesn't work so much uh, all the time. Another, another analogy would be a limb on a tree that you want it to be bent in a certain way. Let us say that you're naturally making the both. And if you hold that limb down with a string, but if the string breaks or that you're holding it down and you let it go, the limb will go back where it was almost. But if you bend it again, then when it goes back, it'll go back, but not almost to the place that it was, which was also almost to where it used to be. Mm-hmm. So you keep bending it a little bit, a little bit more and more and more. It comes to bend in that direction. Another example that I have is the example of a weed that is growing in the pavement. So that uh, it's. So the city doesn't want you to come dig up your sidewalks to get that weed out. And we can't dig it up any other way because it's just coming up to a crack. But what we can do is every time that that weed shows itself above the surface, we can whack it off. And if we keep whacking it off, it's going to come up again and whack it off again. And it's going to come up again and you whack it off again and you come up again. But now it's coming up slower or lazy without the energy and pretty soon it doesn't show up anymore and then after that even the root will die Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to practice every time that we remember we're going to start gladdening the mind and and bending that limb and keep bending it and pretty soon we'll get it bent into shape Uh, pretty soon that weed will stop growing or pretty soon we can think about emails joyfully instead of with dread and aversion yeah it's it's it seems like so much of like the the way that buddhism is talked about in the west is like see like seeing sort of that the mind is like out of our control and like a surrender to that but it is like yeah there's not as much of the emphasis on these like simple ways of like bringing about desirable states and making that and making that a habit well i think that there's this mentality in the west that has that issue of trying it Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. 
Many, many people, you'd be surprised at how many people are dedicated meditation practitioners, but they don't expect it to actually work. Oh, yeah. Just That's something that I, I noticed, too, where it's like, oh, they're going to, like, mitigate, or, like, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, get a little bit of stress, and, like, maybe, like, one day it's a success, and I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm going to, to awaken, you know? it's possible right well he is awakened when he sits down and stops stressing himself yeah but that that is also something that um the the idea of everlasting is really built into our culture it comes out of christianity and that kind of thing as a uh, let us say an influence of our culture and so when Buddhism comes by, people think of enlightenment is a, a state of being that goes along. No enlightenment, no enlightenment, no enlightenment, pop, enlightenment, and now enlightenment, 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 on and on and on. The reality of the situation that it happens this way. <laughs> and the uh, the way of practicing is that's the way of practicing to get it to where it's like that that it's not going to be nothing and then everything it's going to be practice and then relax and then practice and then relax and then practice and relax many examples of that sports are like that music is like that Right. Um, that one of the old stories is, is that Franz Liszt was a kind of a monk, more or less a monk, lived in a, um, a cathedral and practiced organ and piano eight hours a day. And immediately the question is, well, what was he doing with the other hours of the day? Why wasn't he practicing rather than working? You know, wow, this guy's doing eight hours a day of practice. He must be the best guy in the world. And actually, Franz Liszt is generally recognized as the greatest pianist that ever lived. Mm-hmm. And he only did it eight hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And so this whole idea of all enlightenment all the time. No, we're not. We're not doing that. We're practicing right now that, in fact, uh, one of the students just sent a cartoon that he had gotten out of some Zen book or something like that. And it says that when you have just one enlightened thought, then you were enlightened. That moment. Mm-hmm. And my response to that is, is that most Westerners don't know what an enlightenment thought is. They think enlightened thoughts is a very, very whip to do, super duper grandiose out of sight, great big thought, and then bango, no, a wholesome thought is an enlightening thought, as opposed to an unwholesome thought. And you have wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts in, in mixture. The question is, you've never really looked at that, that ratio before. Now we're intentionally beginning to look at that ratio. Mm-hmm. And we're going to intentionally add to one side and by adding to that one side, time or uh, uh, mind moments in, in time, that means you'll be spending um, less time and probably less intensity in dukkha. Mm-hmm. 
Let's come out of the dukkha every time we have an opportunity to come out of it. We're not intending to stay out of it. We don't have the skills to do that, but we can sustain it for a while. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the wrong way that I've been thinking about it for so long is just like, oh, like I just keep looking and it'll like eventually it'll have like it'll wear itself out on its own but no it seems so simple i've heard have people to... say that and guess what you're building it up hoping that it'll wear it out yeah i mean in in a, in a way you know it, it it works but there's a better way <laughs> that's right there is the better way that it does work but those who do it generally referred to a dark night of the soul where they go into because they're so skilled at at sati to remember and they're so skilled at investigation that they see all of this dukkha that they get really really good at it and they wind up basically living their lives in their own city dump mm -hmm. and that is stressful it is miserable it is fearful it is disgusting and the guy who's doing that gets a strong, strong uh, yearning and desire to get out of it. Yeah. Okay. And then he makes the determination of redoubling his effort. And here's where right effort finally comes in. In step 11 out of 16 is when right effort finally comes into play. Mm -hmm. You got to throw that stuff out. But the real teaching of the Buddha is, no, let's start that way. Instead of investigating the hindrances, let's investigate them only to the point of seeing a hindrance as a hindrance, and then out it goes. Right. That's the practice, is that you got to throw that stuff out mm -hmm. and start gladdening the mind and having wholesome thoughts instead. And then the practice becomes joyful and easy. It's like, <laughs> I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> In fact, I want to make sure that I've got nothing else to do. Because by saying that, that's correct practice. <laughs> so correct practice becomes natural. It becomes a, a part of the scenery. We really do like uh, being free from all of the ills and uh, frustrations that we've been giving ourselves all these years that we picked up as children. Go along to get along. And learning all the rules and then keep telling ourselves the rules and then rebelling against the rules that we're telling ourselves. I mean, this is the standard way that the human mind operates, especially in Western culture. Yeah. Okay, so if we train to be in joy, then whatever we do, we can do that joyfully. So we're not saying don't do anything ever again. No, we're saying no, we need to stop doing stuff unhappily long enough to repair the mind, to get the mind in a state fit for work, and then we can go back and do something. Mm-hmm. And we can probably do a better job of it. Or with wisdom, we can take a look at that thing and set, recognize, hey, that's Duke Field. I don't want to do that or it's going to harm somebody or it's going to harm me or it's not worth the effort. And so we begin to use what you could call a cost benefit analysis. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Is it really worth the effort? <laughs> yeah. 
But we're doing that through wisdom rather than through the drudgery of you've got rules to follow. Yeah. That's right. It seems like it seems like such a such a like simple little thing, but it's like sinking in right now. I can like I can see the implications of it. I can see that that kind of practice is possible for me right now. I can see that it's going to mm-hmm. lead to good things into feeling good. Okay. Well, think about it like this. Think about a dry bucket in the hot sun mm-hmm. that's sitting under a water faucet that has a leaky faucet. Okay. And it has a drop. And every drop that you put in the bucket, some of it evaporates. That mm-hmm. in fact, if you're not dropping often enough, the bucket will stay empty because it's a hot bucket. But if you start putting water in the bucket to the point that the bucket now begins to become cool in the bottom and it's also getting kind of a layer of water, now the dropping comes in, begins to fill the bucket up very, very slowly, but it still begins to fill it up. Eventually, the bucket will come full and then it begins to overflow. And when the bucket overflows, then that means that the water is coming out and and um, because it doesn't come out of the bucket in drops. But rather because of surface tension of the water and whatnot, it takes an opportunity and then a whole bunch of water will gush out. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is exactly the analogy that we're looking for of when you're practicing out upon a sati correctly, but you're not practicing enough. It's not going to do you much good. But if you keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing, you get a base in there. And now when you're practicing, it fills up. And now this filling up is actually the filling of joy. It's the filling of uh, can-do attitude. It's the filling up of the uh, the benefits. So when you're down dealing with other people, if you've already got it overflowing, that means that you can give them a whole bunch of it. Right. This is what metta is. Metta is the overflow. Most people want to have, they think of metta as taking my bucket that's almost dry with very little water left in it and dumping it out on somebody, and now my bucket's dry again and it's hot. <laughs> no, we got to let that bucket completely fill up, and now our metta just overflows. That's, that's one of the analogies uh, of how do we deal with the world? Well, we get it fixed on the inside, and then we can deal with it on the outside. If we keep going to the outside with an unfixed inside, we're going to keep messing up the outside. Air how much meta we call it. Wow. <laughs> we really do have to get that stuff on the inside. We've got to get that thing straightened out. We've got to clean house, or we got to do whatever analogy that we want to use. We're having wholesome thoughts. Right. But that but there's so much more of like a draw towards like even for me in this moment towards that kind of practice because all of a sudden it's not like practicing putting up with unpleasant states, it's practicing cultivating joy and pleasantness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you can do it. Now one of the things that I hear from some students is that, well, I tried it. But I just didn't feel the joy. I told myself joy, but I didn't feel the joy. Well, um, that's judgmental thought. Yeah. Another way of doing it is, is that when they talk themselves into joy, they feel whatever little kind of joy it is, and that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some joy. I find it. I got it. <laughs> or a little bit of satisfaction or a little bit of safety and security. That's what we want to build upon. 
But instead, what people do is they build upon being dissatisfied with the joy they have rather than being satisfied with it. Yeah, lots of lots of subtle ways to (laughs) trick yourself. Mm -hmm. And so staying with you can do this, staying with this is okay. staying with. Yeah, never mind that I found myself here. Remember that I can come back up. I don't have to fuss at myself for being down here. I can just come out of it again yeah yeah no even in just like the little moments of sort of playing with the idea internally as we've been talking i like uh, i'm i'm definitely seeing seeing a new possibility <laughs> a new excellent excellent andrew excellent well let's leave this now then and we'll talk next time so you, now you've got more uh, understanding of how yeah. to practice yeah excellent. great this has been really enjoyable. I think that this is uh, uh, going to be quite useful to you. Yeah, I do too. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we see you later. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.